going to ask if you'd join me in Exodus chapter 2 once again. Exodus, the second chapter. Let's ask God's blessing. Father, we thank you again for the privilege of this place and all around the state of South Carolina and our country, the United States of America, around the globe as the Lord's Day continues to unfold. Some places coming to a close and other places well underway. We pray that your kingdom and your glory will be advanced. Your church will be built. We know that that includes not only those coming in who do not know you and who are not yet a part of the people of God, but it includes the building up of your people. And for each person who's assembled here today, Lord, we covet that. We don't want to go out without a sense that you have met with us, that you have opened our hearts, that's so needful, and that you have instructed us and that you have encouraged us and you have guided us for not only that which is in our lives today, but that which will unfold that we don't know about yet. Thank you that you're sovereign in all things. You know everything and you have put together this place, this time, these songs, this message, all of these things for whatever purposes suit your glory, but we believe that you have done that. And so may your perfect will be worked out and accomplished in our midst today. Lord, if we have any that don't know Jesus as personal Savior, whether they're seated in this room or whether they're joining us in live stream or through listening to the message in some other format later, we just pray that they will sense your great love, the wonder of Christ dying on the cross for sinners, the invitation to come as sinners, to accept by faith the precious work of God on the cross of Calvary in payment for our sin, in order that our sins might be forgiven and that we might be restored and reconciled to God and that we might have a home in heaven. And for people here today who know you, we have already prayed. Suit us a blessing. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, as you see there on the screen, I'd like to bring you a message this morning entitled, Jochebed, Overcoming Crisis. Someone even asked me this before church, I believe between Sunday school and church, if this was the message, I had made some reference a week or so ago to a message that I was hoping the Lord would give me the opportunity to bring. And in fact, the answer to that is no. <laughs> so I don't know, I hope I get another opportunity, but the real crux of it is you have to be given the green light. And so when uh, I had this opportunity uh, come my way, I immediately thought of that message. And I went to that scripture and started working with it, and you know, it's just one of those things, this is just not coming. I know what's there, but it's just not coming in the way I would sense that God was confirming to me and lo and behold, the Lord brought an entirely different message on the scene, a new message that uh, I would like to add to an old, I guess, if you look at it in the sense of last fall, being old. When uh, we were together on those Sunday evenings and we're talking about women facing adversity. And so I'm adding a new message to that. It's new to the series, it's new to me, it's new to you. But I really believe it's what God has for us today, so I... I trust and pray it will be a help and a blessing in some way and that God will simply use me. Let me try to recall for you what that was all about. 
we were looking at some of these Old Testament women and noticing adversity coming into their lives. Now, in that sense, it doesn't matter that they were women, okay? Because each of us face adversity. And God brings those things to pass in our lives. But it is kind of a uniquely interesting thing to find out that the Bible certainly portrays woman after woman after woman. As we don't just have heroes in the Bible, we have heroines as well. And it is kind of a fresh take, maybe, to think of it that way. We started off with an extended look, four weeks worth, actually, at Naomi, and noticed that she was facing the adversity of bitterness. Rahab, we took up next, and saw that she struggled with shame. Deborah, next, and see that she was encumbered with lagging male leadership, something the church still has issues with. We looked at Hannah and saw that she struggled with barrenness. We looked at Rachel. That was actually Christmas Eve. And it's that text in Jeremiah 31, 15 about Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. And we, we saw the, how we struggle with loss. Well, this morning I would like to talk to you about Jochebed. Say, who on earth is Jochebed? Well, it's the hero of our story this morning, the heroine. And we don't find her name in the text. What about that? In fact, we don't even find it until we get to Exodus chapter 6. So if you have your Bible open and look over there, I'll show you the place. This is just sort of telling us the lineage of Aaron and the Levites. And it says here in verse number 20, Amram, so that's Moses' father. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. might interest you to know that we only have reference to her name here and in one other place in the Bible. You can take a note on the reference if you would want it. We're not going to turn. But in the book of Numbers, chapter 26 and verse 59, you have the other reference, and it's similar to this. I can tell you this with all honesty this morning. In any list of names, should the Lord have been pleased to give us a daughter, Jochebed was never on it. That's sort of like the midwives, I guess, Shifra and Pua. I don't think I ever really gave serious consideration naming a daughter one of those names. But nevertheless, I think it is worth our getting acquainted with her this morning. Overcoming crisis. Well, let's talk about this idea of crisis for a moment. How do you see crisis in the life of Jochebed? Well, I think first of all you realize that her pregnancy in and of itself, in other words, the moment she knew she was with child, is really the beginning of what you might call in modern parlance angst. Why is that? Because she dreaded having another child, not so much per se. But it's simply because in the day in which she lived, the new Pharaoh, remember the story back in chapter 1 of Exodus, the new Pharaoh, feeling threatened with the way the people of God were multiplying, gave a decree that all the male children should be cast out, should be abandoned. And so the moment you're expecting, and you know you're expecting, and I'm sure Amram was concerned about this too, but you don't know 
I mean, they didn't exactly have ultrasounds lining up in those days, so you don't know. And it's like the clock is ticking. Is this going to be a boy? Is this going to be a boy? And we're going to be in the, in the, the fat is going to be in the fire then. You say, well, didn't they have to face this before? I don't think so. And the reason I say that is this. You know, did Moses have a brother? Yes. His name was Aaron. But when we read the biblical account, we find that Aaron was three years older. Moses is the youngest in this triad. Nothing tells us the age difference between Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, the sister, but it's obvious that she's older because she also is in this story and she's old enough to go there and watch from a distance and see what's going to become of the ark that contains her youngest brother, Moses. So I think, first of all, even if the new pharaoh had been on the scene, you wouldn't have had to worry about Miriam. She was a girl, but I don't think the new pharaoh was on the scene when Aaron was born. But when Moses was conceived and when Moses came, and now this thing blossoms into not angst, but a full-blown crisis when that baby comes into this world and that baby is a boy. What are those parents going to do? I don't even want to think about what other Israelites did. We just have one to talk about here this morning, but think about how this scene must have played out time after time after time and the, the crisis that those people faced and what did they do. Well, you don't have to look much further than our own day when you realize the, the, the sinfulness and the failings of of us as human beings, what do people do today? After all, it's not by a mistake that we have many of these places as shelters for women, and what do we call them? Crisis pregnancy centers. And just this week, there was a story of a woman in Portland, Oregon, who gave birth on the street to a child, on the street, and walked off and abandoned it. Fortunately, it was called in, people saw that, or whatever, and the police came and they were able to get the mother, they were able to find her, they, they got the child, the child was okay, and they sent her, I think, for some evaluation, but they, you know, it, it had a happy ending insofar as all we know at this point. But it happens all the time. And folks, I just want to tell you something here this morning. There is a difference, I'm not saying it's a good thing, there's a huge difference between someone who goes and puts some cats out that they don't want along the side of the road and somebody who does that with a child. Because we're talking about a life and we're talking about someone created in the image of God. So a crisis comes into this woman's life and this is not new. It's, this is a crisis that's come into many a woman's life and a man. Particularly if they're not in a situation to meet it with believing principles and biblical foundation. Life's crises can be crushing. And you don't have to look much further than what some folks in our church are going through. I won't name names, but... Or you can just look in the world. I mean, we have a crisis at the border. We have a crisis at the gas pump. We have a crisis with inflation. We have a crisis in the Ukraine. So whether they're crises among our brothers and sisters or crises that come up in our own lives, crises abound. They seem to be part of the warp and woof of life. And the question is, what do we do when they come into our lives? What did Jochebed and Amram do when they came into their life? 
And the only thing that I can tell you is the point of this message this morning is they must, they must. The only way to meet them is by faith. Faith in God who is sovereign, faith in God who is with us, faith in God who has a sufficient grace. And if you and I do not meet them in faith, they will crush us. So, in this morning, we're going to be talking a lot about faith, and we're going to see this. So, in this first point, we're going to see four pictures of this. We're going to see faith confirmed, which, as you can see, is the first thought, then tested, then reinforced, and finally rewarded. So, I want to start here, faith confirmed, because it's really important, I think, for all of us to have settled in our hearts at the outset that Coleman just didn't come up with this because it sounded good. No, this is what the Bible tells us about these people. Fortunately, I mean, I think we could tell a lot of this from just the story in the Old Testament. I don't mean to imply not, but we have two places in the New Testament that shed a lot of light on what happened here. We're going to, in the course of the message, be looking at them. But right now I want you to focus on this. This woman and this man, though they are unnamed, are in the hall of faith. It says in Hebrews 11.23, by faith Moses. Now, the writer focuses on Moses because Moses is what he wants to develop. He goes on in the subsequent verses to talk about Moses. So he starts with Moses, but then makes it plain that the faith that's being described in this verse is not the faith of an infant boy who was too young to know anything about faith. It was as of his parents. They were people of faith. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was born. Don't you love the passive voice? Was hidden. It doesn't say until later, for three months, but now we're told. Who did the hiding? His parents. And why did they do the hiding? Because they saw that the child was beautiful. We're going to pass over that for now. And, we want to focus on this right now. They were not afraid of the king's edict. So it is really important to settle from the outset that this picture that I'm giving you and the picture that the Bible presents of these people, they started out as people of faith. And they continued in addressing this crisis that came into their lives in that same vein, by faith. They started on the right foot. Both parents are obviously involved in this. The writer makes that clear. They were hidden, it says, by his parents, plural. But it is kind of interesting that Jochebed is the one who's put forward in the story. Now, okay, you can go home and figure out all the reasons why you like that. And I can't settle for you why, but I will, I will ratchet it up. Jochebed isn't the only one. She's the foremost one, but there are actually four. All the people that are put forward in this story, all the people that are emphasized in this story, are all women. Who are they? Well, there are four of them. Back in chapter 1, there are the midwives. We don't know the name of but two, but there's Shifra and Pua. Hey, they are heroines. 
When you get to the story, there's, of course, Jochebed. Then there's Miriam off to the side watching. And there's Pharaoh's daughter, whatever her name was. So you can do with that what you want, but I think maybe the, at the very least, and maybe more so, we should concentrate on this rather than trying to get a political thought from that. Let's focus on this. Kind of natural, isn't it, to focus on the boy's mother? Kind of unnatural. In fact, Paul tells us this, that when we are in the last days, of which we most certainly are and have been really since the church age began, but nevertheless, that's a different matter. Paul says that one of the characteristics of people in the last days is that they will be without natural affection. You remember reading that in your Bible? Without natural affection. Now, you might be thinking that's referring to sexual aberration, but it really is not. It's talking about the same thing we're talking about here. You, you look at the words, and you'll find out that that's what they have to do with. They have to do with the natural affection. And not that fathers don't have it, but there's something within the breast of a woman that God places there. And so it doesn't surprise me, really, but I love it. I like to see it. It just... You know, when it comes to raising kids, I don't mean to sound trite, but the best man for the job is a woman. And I don't mean, yeah, okay, you're awake now. What in the world is he talking about? I'm just saying this. We all have our roles in life, right? Men have theirs, and they certainly have a place in the raising of children. I don't mean to, this is not the Berenstein Bears up here this morning, folks. They certainly have a dynamic and key role, but there is something special about how God made women. That they are uniquely gifted in that role and capable in that role. And if I didn't know that before, when we started having kids, my wife proved that to me over and over again without trying. And I'm sure that you've seen that over and over again so it, it just doesn't surprise me. Okay, we don't need to talk about that any longer, but we do want to go to our, continue to move along in this and go to our second point. So faith is tested. Well, why does that come next? Well, and how does it come? Well, it, it, as soon as the child is born and turns out to be a boy, now you've got the crisis mode, big time. What's going to happen? What are they going to do? How are they going to respond? But why it happens? Well, folks, I don't know, except just to tell you that haven't we all sort of figured out in the journey of faith that faith untested is faith unproven? And faith untested is faith ungrown? And I don't know why that we can't grow any better any different way. But it just seems like that's the way it works. And God sees fit to grow us and to develop us through trials and to prove our faith to us and to prove it to others as they watch what happens to us when we go through life's crises. I'm not an expert in the subject, but I read something that struck me in the context of what I'm talking to you about right now. Someone said this, a clay pot sitting in the sun will always be a clay pot. It has to go through white heat of the furnace to become porcelain. I have found something in Christian experience. Have you? Here's what it is. 
as you go on and as the years pass, the trials don't become less or less severe. What happens is your shoulders become broader and God's grace has proven more sufficient to you on other occasions so that now God can give you something more that's bigger than what came before and you think that'll crush you but it won't by God's grace and if you meet it by faith and what is God doing? Is he lost his mind? Why in the world does he bring these things into our lives? I mean, we hear, all you have to do is read the Wednesday prayer sheet and you think to yourself, oh my soul, dear God, what are you doing? Well, see, here's the thing. The new Pharaoh comes along and he has decreed that any male child is to be abandoned. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 2 is where we see that the child is born a male. But what, what really happens in this? And the word abandon, I want you to take note of for a moment, because back in the New Testament, or in the New Testament commentary that I mentioned a while ago, that we, we have that sheds light on this. So here's some additional things. This is all from Acts chapter 7, where it's Stephen's sermon, and he's recounting a, a good bit of the Old Testament history with kind of the theme in mind of showing that whether it was Moses or Joseph and ultimately Christ, the Israelites consistently just rejected God's person, God's leader, and God. Well, here's what it says. He, that is the new Pharaoh, dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants. Notice the word expose so that they would not be kept alive. Now, verse 21, notice the word exposed again. And when he was exposed, this is Moses, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. Well, why this is interesting is because in the New Testament, in those two verses in Acts chapter 7, that's actually a, like a technical expression for abandoning a child. That's bad enough. But then when we realize what the new Pharaoh was actually saying, it was not just like somebody who goes and leaves a child at the emergency room and fades off into anonymity. You know, you, you can do that. And some people do do that. That's a whole lot better than just throwing them in a dumpster. There was someone who did that with several months ago, too. That was in the news. Or just on the street and abandoning them. That's better. But that's not what the Pharaoh was saying. He was saying, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall, here's how they were to abandon them. Cast it into the Nile. That's rather final. Children can't swim. And if you toss an infant into the water, you know the sure fate of that child. Now this is a crisis. What are you going to do if you are Amram? And what are you going to do if you're Jochebed? Will you fear God more than Pharaoh? God says that human life is sacred. God says that we're created in his image. Whether planned or unplanned, whether wanted or unwanted, God gives children doesn't change the fact that they are created in his image and they are precious in his sight. 
So will they fear God more or Pharaoh more? That boils down to another question. Will they love themselves more, doing the easy thing and shielding themselves from any possibility of the wrath of the Pharaoh by casting the child out and disobeying God, or will they love the child more? Tell me that people are not facing these decisions all the time. In the Christian context and not in the Christian context. Well, I have news for you, and boy, I'm smiling. They passed this test with flying colors. Not because it's not excruciating. Not because it wouldn't test the mettle of any person. But because they embrace this by faith. They trust God. That's what the author to the Hebrews is telling us. When he says at the end of this verse, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. To come up with that kind of a posture, you have to believe in a God who's bigger than Pharaoh. Right? The only way you're going to do that is to believe in the God of the Bible and to embrace his truth and his promises by faith. Well, we have something else to talk about. Not only will faith eventually be tested as it was in their case, if it exists, if we are people of faith, it will be tested. Sometimes it would seem severely. But thank God you can add this point too. Faith will be reinforced. Faith will be encouraged. Now, why does God do this? Well, because he knows we're weak. So, God only sends these kinds of trials, like what we're talking about this morning, to heroes and heroines, right? Everybody gets trials. Everybody gets trials. And I'll guarantee you the way this works. You'll look at somebody else's trial and you'll just shake your head. How on earth do they survive? How on earth do they do that? I couldn't do that. No, you probably can't because God hasn't called you to. But if you were in their situation and God called you to, yes, you can by God's grace. That's why I always smiled over the years that people would ask the question, do you have dying grace? I said, well, no. I don't believe I'm dying. I mean, everybody here is dying, but you know what I mean. When it comes time to die, ask me then. I'm sure I'll be able to tell you, yes, I have dying grace if I'm cognizant and aware of what's going on. But God knows how to encourage us because he understands our weakness. And how does he do this in the life of these people? Well, first of all, he sends them the midwives. Let's begin to read about their story a little bit more. So it says in verse 15 of Exodus chapter 1, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, of whom was one was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. Well, now look, if you're a, a woman of faith and you hear something like that, how are you going to respond? That's diametrically opposed to our Christian principles. But the midwives, it says, here's how they responded to it. Verse 17 says, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let 
the male children live. Let the male children live. Pharaoh heard about that, called him in. Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Kind of an interesting story, isn't it? Well, you know, these Hebrew women, they, they give birth. They're quick. They give birth before we get there. I'll let you wrestle with that one. All I know was the predominant truth in the story is that in whatever way and with whatever light they had, their response nevertheless reflected the fact that they had faith in God and that they feared him more than they feared Pharaoh. I'm not saying it's right to lie. I'm just telling you it's a little difficult to unravel if you let yourself get off in the weeds. You just have to keep in mind that the predominant point of the story is that. But Amram and Jochebed saw this. Well, you know what? These midwives have faced this crisis time and time again. What did they do? They didn't obey Pharaoh. They obeyed God. What happened? They got put in jail. That could happen, but it didn't in this case. God blessed them. God took care of them. So they saw that. That's one encouragement that God gave them. Another encouragement that God gave them, though, is this. And I find this, I have to, I have to do what I can to tell you about this, but to me, I find this to be probably the most intriguing thought in the study of this, and that is that the other thing that God gave them was their God-given perception of the child. Let's come back to verse 2 now. In the text, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child. What's that mean? And we've got to be careful we don't get off into some more weeds, because it certainly isn't trying to make the point that if he'd been ugly, or if he'd been impaired in some way physically, that they would have taken a different attitude. Oh no, beloved, that's not how it works. And that's not what this means. You say, well, then what does it mean? Well, I'm going to give as best I can to you, but at some point, it's going to come down to something like what I've expressed here, their God-given perception of the child. So we have to unravel this. The Hebrew word that's translated fine here is just a standard word that you come across time and time again in the Old Testament. It's tov, it simply means good. They saw he was a good child. Well, he wasn't old enough to be bad. So it doesn't mean that, because they all cry, right? So it doesn't mean that. It probably, it's actually the same word that's used in that context in Genesis 6-3, where it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. It's probably used in a context like that to mean desirable. But why that's true and what 
how that affects them, we have to continue to unravel what we're given in the Bible to really get on top of because that's all we're told in this text and that we, it just, it's up for grabs. We can't really know what exactly it was they saw and how the Spirit of God used that to impress their hearts and, and, and their minds. But I do know this, that in both the places that the New Testament talks about this, it singles this point out. That to me is fascinating. And not only in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, does it use the, the same word, but in both places in the New Testament, it uses the exact same word to translate this word tov, Hebrew, word for good. It uses a Greek word, and the King James Version in Hebrews 11.23 translates it proper. They saw that he was a proper child. But what does that mean? And I can't answer that for you. So here's the Acts passage. At the time Moses was born, he was beautiful. <laughs> We're struggling here. Don't know precisely what's going on here. Hebrews. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful, and ESV uses that beautiful translation. King James uses the translation proper. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Folks, all we can really say from this is that something about that child's appearance that will remain undefined was used by God to impress on them all the more. They already had the conviction. They already had the concern to do the will of God. But something about the child's appearance when they looked on that child, the Spirit of God used that to speak to their heart, and if only it did this, it reinforced their belief. We simply cannot do what the king says. I can't go beyond that with you. I just know that's what it's talking about. And it's reinforced, actually, and I need to go back. Sorry, hit the wrong button, but you don't see it in this, you do see it in this text. It's reflected. You'll notice that the Stephen, when he's talking about this, adds two words that we don't have anywhere else. It says, at this time Moses was born, he was beautiful, and then look at this, in God's sight. That's three words. Two in Greek. Totho, to God. He was beautiful to God. Precious in God's sight. Somehow God spoke to their hearts and said, this child is precious in God's sight and he has given this child to us and we will not do what Pharaoh says. I'm telling you, God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. This is the God who meets you in trial and who is faithful in trial and who brings the requisite, needed encouragement to our hearts, who puts the grace within us to do what we could never do in and of ourselves and to face life's crises. Well, if I have enjoyed the other points, I think this is the best. It doesn't get any better than this. Jochebed responds to the encouragement to her faith that God gives with more actions of faith. What are they? Well, we've read the text and read the story. Let me just really quickly point out two. First of all, she builds an ark. Well, maybe Amran 
I don't know. But it says Jochebed. So I'm sure the two worked on it together, and I find it very interesting, and we won't get off into this, but you know, now comes the second time an ark comes up in the Bible. Both times it's a place of safety. The Ark of the Covenant hasn't come along yet. That's a different situation, but we can still... This is interesting here. One ark shields Noah by being in it from the judgment waters of the flood, and another ark pr protects this child from the ravaging depths of the Nile River. Interesting. You can do thought work with that later, but... Well, why would you do that? Why would you do that if you didn't believe God? If you believed that the jig was up, if you believed, okay, it's over, that the kid's three months old, he yak, he, he's so loud at this point that we're going to be discovered. If you didn't believe that God was in this, if God hadn't already impressed it in your heart, if you weren't a person of faith, if you didn't already sense God is doing something here, I don't know what it is, but God is doing something, you wouldn't act this way. But if you believed that God had some purpose for this child and that God gave him to you for that purpose and that you were sacredly charged by God as a steward for that child, you might do something like this. You wouldn't cast it into the river at this point when you say, I can't hide it any longer. You wouldn't just throw up your hands and say, well, I guess that's all we can do. Now, you say, well, this is kind of random, isn't it? Why did they come up with that? No, it's not random at all. And it isn't. It is an act of faith where the ark is placed. So, you think this was just random? That she got this idea about an ark and just thought, well, you know, I'll take it down there to the Jordan River. Maybe that's a good place for it. Well, there's actually more to the story. Turns out the Jordan was used regularly by Pharaoh. So it's no stretch to see Pharaoh's daughter doing the same thing, which is exactly what we see in the story. They went there to bathe. So when she built this ark, she knew exactly what she was doing. She was positioning that child to be discovered by someone who might be able to be used by God unknowingly to be this child's salvation. Go to Pharaoh, he said to Moses in the morning, as he is going out to the river, stand on the bank to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. So that's the first. But there's another one. May not say so explicitly in the story, but I think Mama was involved in this whole thing. I think she told her daughter because it would have been a little obvious for her to go. I think she said to Miriam, trot on over there and hide somewhere off to the side and see what, come back, let me know what happens to the child. Why would you do that if you weren't expecting God to do something? If you weren't expecting God to do something, you wouldn't make the ark. If you weren't expecting God to do something, you wouldn't worry about what the outcome would be. You'd just figure, well, it's over. And how does God respond when people embrace him and his promises by faith? God is delighted. Because without faith it is impossible to please God. And he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith honors God and God honors faith. And so it doesn't get any better than this, folks. Look at what it says here. Miriam's off to the side. She sees that Pharaoh's daughter is inclined to be pitia, pitiable towards the child. 
and she just happens to sort of ease up. I can call a Hebrew nurse if you would like. And she goes and gets her mother. Of all things. She goes and gets her mother, and when her mother comes, Pharaoh's daughter says to her, take this child and nurse it, and I'll pay you too. How's that for God sealing our commitments of faith with his blessing? Take your own child back. You gave him to me by faith. You surrendered what you had to me by faith. I give it back to you. And not only do I give it back to you, but I give you extra blessing on top. Because you have honored me. Faith honors God. God honors faith. I have more I'd like to say, but I want to bring this to a conclusion and I don't want to omit something that I wanted to tell you at the end because I think it has a way of bringing what I'm trying to say to us in something that's a part of our current context and even our current worship. So life is full of crises, some of which are almost unimaginable really in their proportions. They will crush us if we do not meet them by faith in the God of unfailing goodness and mysterious but nevertheless sure providence. That will see us through. Faith in something as simple and yet as profound is we know that God works all things together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. Easy preaching, hard living, but it's true. I have been young and now I'm old. I'm not talking about me, the psalmist. I have been young and now I'm old. Looking back on all of life, he said this, Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken. I've never seen that. Nor his seed begging bread. I've never seen that. I have always seen God to be faithful. About three weeks ago, my daughter sent a brief video. For those of you who don't know, my daughter is serving the Lord with Baptist admissions in Honduras, and my wife's daughter too. Anyway, she's a music person, and so she sends, you know, it's not infrequent for her to send music type things. I, I always look at them because she might be a music person, but I'm deeply interested. Not just in her, but in music and in what it, how God uses it 
And anyway, this video, I said, well, I'll click on this and see what it is. And I, I clicked on it, it, it came up, and first thing I know, here's these people. I just assumed because she's in Honduras that they were Hondurans. And these people were singing in this video, and they were singing, He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. And I thought, well, that's nice. And I went on about my business. I didn't realize until later that what she had sent me was a video of Ukrainian believers singing that song. I tracked it down and found out more about it and found out that actually the video was made in December, which didn't diminish its power to me. It didn't change it at all because it said the very same thing to me. It said that people with 100,000 Russian troops on their border and going up every day believed that they could trust God to keep them. No matter what crises life threw at them. Well, that song has been used by God in our lives before, and I don't have time to tell you that story. But I will tell you this, I got to digging, as I often do about these things. And I found out something that I had known before, but I was more intrigued by it, so I'll tell you it, and, and maybe if you didn't know it, it will be a blessing to you. But you know, the song was actually written over 100 years ago by a woman by the name of Ada Ruth Habershone. But, more recently, a gentleman by the name of Matt Merker has given us a tune and written a third stanza, and that's what you and I are accustomed to singing. We're not accustomed to singing the old version. But attached, if you're, if you're interested in doing a search on it, you'll find that Matt Merker has a video between two and three minutes where he explains the genesis of this song for him. He explains that he was going through a period of questioning and doubt in his life read the words to that song and said to himself, that's a message I need. That's a song I need to sing to myself. That's a song I need to sing. And so he wrote a new melody for it and some new words for a final stanza. But listen to what you have when you put what Ruth Habershone wrote with what Matt Merker added. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost, his promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. Matt Merker adds, For my life he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast. 
Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Gracious God in heaven, we bow in your presence, humbled and awed, not only at what sometimes you call your people to endure, but all the more in how you prove yourself sufficient in whatever you ordain. Even as another song that we sing reminds us, whatever my God ordains is right. Thank you for these great promises. Some dear child of God, from this pulpit to the back, needs encouragement today. Somebody's going through a crisis. Somebody needs to remember and be encouraged, as only the Holy Spirit can do. He will hold me fast. And whether that's now or whether it's to come in someone's life, would you prove it to be so and would you magnify your grace and glorify your Son in our lives? For we pray it in his name. Amen.